Hello, this is Pod Bless Canada, and my name is Ken Coates. I'm a senior fellow with McDonald Lurie Institute. I'm delighted today to be speaking to Greg Finnegan. Greg is one of Canada's uh, foremost uh, historical geographers with a, a lovely uh, set of experience in both statistical analysis and, and historical geography, holds a PhD in that field. He's held some very senior positions uh, in different uh, parts of government and different parts of the private sector economy. Uh, He was the chief statistician for the Yukon uh, Territory for a time. Also worked with the International Center for Northern Governance and Development at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, He's a longtime Yukoner and currently is the chief executive officer of the Nachonekdan First Nation Development Corporation. Has wonderful experience in working with indigenous communities in the north and is here today to talk to us about what is actually happening in the community of Mayo and the Natural Knockdown First Nation. Uh, Greg, welcome to Pod Bless Canada. Well, thank you very much, Ken, and that was a wonderful uh, introduction. Well, it's really great to have you with us. One of the things we've been doing with McDonald Laurie Institute is talking about what we describe as sort of the, the renaissance in Aboriginal entrepreneurship and business development. Um, there's a lot of people in Canada who think this is a, a, a new phenomena. Um, you and I both as historians know full well that uh, entrepreneurship is deeply ingrained in Indigenous culture and has been around for, for, for centuries, um, obviously a big part of the fur trade in, in Canada as a whole. But I'm wondering if you could start off with uh, telling our listeners a little bit about Natural Nectan, about the First Nation, its location, its size, and perhaps a little bit about its land claim. The uh, Nachonaik Dunn Development Corp. is the business arm of the First Nation of Nachonaik Dunn. The First Nation Nachonaik Dunn is located in the um, mid-north, shall we say, of the Yukon. So the village of Mayo is about four and a half hours north of uh, Whitehorse as you drive. And as you drive up the highway, you go over the Stewart River. And if you go left, you go to Dawson. But if you go right, you go through to Mayo. It's a Beautiful small village of about 500 people in the extended area. Uh, It's primarily in the middle of a, it's a mining sector. Uh, It's in the heart of what's called the Tentina Trench. And this is an area of gold, silver, lead, zinc, copper, tin. Uh, As of today, I've just heard about copper and tin coming into play with the TAC resources. It has uh, two mines which are looking to be producing gold and silver in, a, in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, the Victoria Gold is the gold mine and uh, Alexco Resource is the silver lead zinc mine. Uh, the community, the First Nation itself is self-governing and, and has been for about 25 years. And self-governing really means it has its own government, its chief and council. It has a considerable uh, civil service and it provides services both in Mayo to its own people as well as to its many people, and I'd say maybe 40 to 50% of the population live away from Mayo, which is common, I think, in northern Indigenous communities. There's a a real exodus uh, for job and education opportunities. Uh, The community has historically been involved with mining, and it has, uh, you know, provided a labor force, both skilled and unskilled, to um, United Keno Hill Mines and to exploration mining and to placer miners in the region for nigh on 80 years plus. So when we think of the original 1898 trek to the Yukon and and the Klondike, which was all about Dawson, well, uh, the Mayo region was active at the same time, but didn't get the press. 
Well, that's a that's a great summary, Greg. I know as a statistician, you certainly have way more numbers at your fingertips than most of us. But if, if we were looking at the economic situation in National Dan right now among the First Nation people, um, what would the what would the numbers tell us? Well, the numbers um, are, are always challenging with small communities, particularly small dispersed communities. But for the most part, what we're starting to see is the job opportunities are immense. So you end up with um, Victoria Gold will have about 400 to 450 people throughout its mine build and 250 on regular time uh, when production. Alexco probably will peak out just under 150 during during its production period. Its mine, its mine cap is in that area. And then there are all the placer miners, and then there's the exploration work that's going on. So there are numerous job opportunities in the region. And our our Minister of Economic Development, uh, Minister Ranj Pillay of the Yukon government, made a comment recently. He said, I used to go up to uh, Mayo and the job board would have a couple postings on it. Uh, now you're nailing the job postings on because they're so thick on the ground. And it was a wonderful comment, and it speaks to the change in the economy there. But that change in the economy is the classic boom and bust cycles we see in northern resource sectors. And that is something of great concern to me as the uh, CEO of the DevCorp, is how do we, shall we say, make hay while the, the sun is shining and be ready for the rainy day uh, so we have things put away and diversify our economy a bit. Mayo is a very remote community and people speak about tourism, but it really is a very limited tourism market opportunity. It's not on the main highway from Alaska through Dawson to Whitehorse in the south. Uh, it's off, off route. And so we're, we have to look at, uh, at investment opportunities, which will help keep the income stream and the job opportunities growing in Mayo or stabilized in Mayo after the boom cycle Runs in a, runs its course well, and your organization, uh, the Development Corporation, has was established, I think, to sort of e- e- level out that boom and bust phenomena, and to make sure that the local First Nation actually capitalized on what is really a sort of a, a resurgence in the Yukon sort of mining economy and the economy sort of generally. Can you give us a bit of background as to when the Development Corporation was set up and what the aspirations were at the time? I really wish I could, Ken. I know the the DevCorp was set up circa 1994-95. Unfortunately, as with many small Indigenous organizations, corporate history is weak, record keeping was weaker, and and in essence, um, that's a challenge for me to be able to say very much. I was only able to rebuild the last since 2011, have I been able to rebuild the numbers to understand where our, our, our business opportunities lay and, and our economy lay? And and I, it's an unfortunate statement, but you know, you and I have worked in this field long enough to know that you know uh, record keeping and data data management, data storage are are real challenges for small organizations and indigenous organizations. Well, and the uncertainty that they've experienced there, the development corporation, is also quite common with indigenous development corporations. There's no guaranteed past, uh, path to success, is there? Uh, no, there isn't. Um, and I think each one is is quite individualist, individual, and in it's it's um, it's path to success or it's 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 challenges. When when uh, my small team, and I quite often speak in the first person, but I really should be speaking in the multiples because. I've got a, a bit of a trilogy of, uh, or, or a trifecta of experts here. And between the three of us, 
we plotted a course for the company based on our our major asset. And our major asset was the First Nations negotiating of comprehensive or industry benefit agreements with Victoria Gold and Alexco Resources. I'm sorry, Alexco Resource. And that that was our, those were our twin pillars to try building uh, an organization on. And one of the things I recognize is, you know, we didn't have access to capital. Uh, we didn't have good credit, shall we say, and that's common in First Nation organizations. But we did have was a willingness from the two mining corporations to say to their suppliers, you need to build a relationship with our First Nation partner. And so, uh, you know, to John McConnell and Mark Arento and Brad Thrall and to Clint, I, I say thank you because they set the pathway for industry to say, well, geez, if we want to be selling into these big mining projects, we have to find a way of partnering with the First Nation. And we've done that very successfully. We we're open for business. Uh, we have over 40 business partnerships lined up and in work in place right now. And we're doing everything from uh, high end, helping helping do things from high end uh, environmental engineering and permafrost studies uh, through to uh, you know hauling trucks loads of, of rock to crushers and and building roadways. And this group uh, of companies I've been able to bring into partnership has allowed us to effectively, as one geologist, one mining company said, "Wow, you've you've got a turnkey mining operation. You you could you could do everything from mineral exploration to cl- closure and and remediation with the corporations you have online and in partnership with. That's that's where I've gone." Okay, Greg, just a really quick question. Many of our listeners will not automatically know what an impact and benefit agreement is. So can you just give a quick description of what those terms mean in the context of uh, Mayo and National Den? So the larger impact agreements cover everything from um, social impacts, uh, economic impacts, cultural impacts, and you're looking at traditional people living close to the land. Uh, so, for example, um, one of the things necessary for the opening of these two mines and production of the two mines will be improving power. So that means upgrading the power lines. So Yukon Energy Corporation is negotiating with the First Nation for the trappers who will be impacted by not being able to go on their trap lines for a couple of years while the power lines are upgraded. So there is a very clear example of a traditional lifestyle and economic activity in trapping, which is being impacted by the mining activity. Uh, and that's on a linear basis. The mines are more, the, both the mine sites are in areas that have been heavily impacted by mining for decades, if not close to a century. And, and in a sense, uh, you wouldn't call them uh, green green spaces. The, these are heavily mined, heavily worked regions of, of the north for mining. In fact, Alexco Resource, they make, they're, they're primarily a remediation corporation that also does mining and mining exploration. So they have a, a very nice contract with INAC or whatever name that company organization of Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada is going under now, but they have a very strong contract with them to do uh, remediation on site. And continuing on with that benefit impact benefits agreement, one of the communities, there's a closed old mining community that you know well named ELSA. Yeah. Uh, and ELSA uh, has to be remediated and cleaned up and better understood what it might be the opportunities there. So, um, Andriana, who, who works with us uh, here, she's going to be going up to Mayo to sit with the First Nation and sit with INAC and uh, 
Alexco resources to sit around and start contemplating what could be done with ELSA for the future. That's interesting. Hey, listen, one other quick question on a technical nature. I want to get into some of the projects you're working on because I think most people have uh, very little understanding of what a development corporation might be doing and very little understanding of the economic opportunities that exist in in what are, as you describe, remote, remote communities. But tell us a little bit, if you could, about the administrative structure under which the development corporation operates. So you are wholly owned, I believe, by the First Nation, and you respond to, um, to sort of direction from the First Nation. Can you just explain how that works? All right. Uh, so as the CEO of the corporation, I report to the chairperson of the Nacho Nayak Dunn Development Corporation Board. Our board, uh, the chair and our board, report to what's called the Business Trust. The Business Trust is all members, uh, all members of the Business Trust, there's five of them, are members of the Nacho Nayak Dunn First Nation, and they are our sole shareholder. They are appointed by chief and council. So we are somewhat arm's length from the chief and council and from the general assembly. And how much interaction do you as a uh, the CEO of this organization have with the community itself? It comes and goes. Um, our organization does have a fair amount of interaction with the community of Mayo, and I'll explain why. Mayo is a uh, underdeveloped, small underdeveloped community. It, it's 500 people, but it really only has one retail business, which is Mayo Foods, which we own. And it has a liquor store owned by the Yukon government. It has a cafe, which just reopened uh, with a First Nation, wonderful First Nation chef running it, uh, Jody Bike. And Jody is uh, our leasee at the restaurant, which we own. And it has a part-time pizzeria that's open sometimes and not other times. Uh, it has a lot of small businesses, but they're not storefront businesses. They're, they're service-oriented, out-of-the-house businesses. It's a, I find mail to be very under-resourced uh, from a retail business perspective. So one of our tasks is to provide business development opportunities for mail or economic development opportunities in mail, and not just for the First Nation, but for the village. And that's the thing I forgot to mention about mail. It's a mixed community. As, with, as you know, in the Yukon, almost all of our communities are, are mixed communities. They're not... Um, you know, they're not Indigenous or First Nation standalone communities. Most are, are quite mixed or integrated. And uh, so in a sense, one of the things that DevCorp we're trying to do is, is generate business development opportunities. We helped um, the cafe reopen with a First Nation owner. We're helping another company called Haldane Services open up a truck stop in Mayo. And so we're working diligently to help that couple work towards their, their goal of opening a, a First Nation-owned business as well. And this year, I want to get started with 10 business opportunities, 10 new business opportunities in mail, be they First Nation or not, but helping them helping them move forward and achieve better. Well, this is all very interesting, Regan, and, and really quite different from how most people sort of view isolated Indigenous communities, mixed communities, in the case of Mayo, 400 people. Um, you're talking about a very increasingly complex environment. The first time you and I spoke about a development corporation shortly after you started, I think you told me that there were something like 15 potential uh, revenue streams yeah. in, the, in the area. Um, the next time, about six months later, I spoke to you, you said you had 32 revenue streams, and now you're telling about even more. So I wonder if you could just give me a really quick overview of sort of the, just just the kind of the kinds of things you're doing. You're talking about mining, you're talking about retail, talking about service sectors. Um, what are you not doing? 
<laughs> well, let's say let's let's start with the positive side. So what what I started off doing is we had agreements, as I mentioned, the CBAs with the two mining companies. So what I did, being an academic and trained in economic studies, economic geography, I said, what's the supply chain for mining look like? Oh, okay. So there's like here's like a hundred different businesses provide services into mining. Well, some of them I can do something with, others I can't. I'm not going to suddenly buy an accounting firm or a law firm or a finance firm. So, uh, but I do. I can get into uh, uh, trucking, uh, expediting. I can get into hauling. I can get into um, uh, heavy iron uh, equipment. Uh, you know, uh, the big shovels and the the big dump trucks and stuff. And so I found all these areas that we could work in. And I went out and I I made phone calls and and, and the, you know how personable the Yukon is. People come in and talk to you and, and you get involved with things and one person leads to another person. So we went from ALS, one of my first, my first signing was with a partnership was what we call revenue shares is with ALX uh, mineral resources or mining resources. And they led to drilling companies and drilling companies led to heavy iron equipment companies. And, and pretty soon I had companies coming to us and talking to us about partnerships Right now, we're, we're down to uh, the waste side of things. So uh, Brad Thrall from Alexco Resource said, Greg, I need to have waste haulage done because our, our incinerator is no longer functioning or legal or something like that. So now I'm looking at an incinerator of garbage opportunity. So opportunities come through the door and I respond quickly and I get things rolling because I don't have to carry the burden. I pass it on to a, a partner company to take it on. And then we get a revenue stream from those. Things we're not into right now, we're not into housing. Uh, housing's a big issue in Mayo, especially with the growth in population that's expected there. Uh, so we have to start looking at housing opportunities. But that has some problems because the First Nation housing, which we could build, which would be good for the First Nation's tax base, there isn't yet a resolution of Aboriginal title there. So tell me a bit about the airplane investment you own you own an airline an airplane not an airline an airplane how did you do this so we partner with alcan air and we own a small eight seat uh single engine prop plane uh it's a navajo chieftain part of the piper family and uh, that's leased out on a regular basis and we earn a very healthy uh return on investment upwards of uh, above 10 percent on that and that's a, a nice secure uh, investment for us because it's also called a dry lease. So we're not responsible for servicing or insurance or engine replacement. That's all taken care of before our percentage of return on investment. That's another area we've invested in. We're presently looking at the Mayo Airport as an investment. So thinking of airports as small regional hubs for economic development and uh, also for a kind of like a gateway gateway uh, business opportunity into tourism as well. And so uh, the Mayo Airport is uh, undersized, underserviced, and way out of date. And the Yukon government really can't afford to do much about that right now. But presently, another partner I have, Air North, is flying scheduled flights, uh, seater, seating about 47-person plane, uh, in there presently three days a week, but probably expanding to five days a week in the next month. So Mayo has scheduled flights. 
<laughs> That's amazing. So let me just use that as an example, the, the Mayo Airport. It strikes me that, that as the development corporation looks at his ideas and the possibilities, you're looking partly at profitability. It doesn't seem to me you're in the business of losing money. Um, and I think you're actually making good money right now. Uh, but is it not also true that a lot of what you're doing is trying to figure out businesses that will actually improve the quality of life in Mayo and, the, and for the First Nation generally? Yes. So certainly, I think that's that's one of the underlying currents is, although I'm in business and I'm you know very much a capitalist, uh, the reality is there's a very strong element of, shall we say, social capital or social equity that we need to, to deal with. It's an underserviced community. It has challenges. Even, even a boom like this is creating challenges for the community, uh, which is outside my realm of expertise or area that I can really delve into. But Success also breeds uh, challenges for some people. And, and one of those challenges is people wouldn't think of it, but if you suddenly start making 100000 a year, you might want to look, look at living somewhere else. You might say, oh, geez, you know, with the money I'm making, I can go buy a house in Whitehorse and commute to work. Or I could go buy a house in Kelowna and commute to work. And that's just it. These are fly-in, fly-out mines. And even though you might be a local Indigenous hire, nothing says you have to stay there. Well, and, and Greg, you know, you've done some really great studies over the years of this whole process of the out-migration of, of Northern people uh, when they secure interesting work. And it's a it's a hard balance, isn't it, to sort of, you know, people are hired because they're in the North and from the North and doing work in their own communities, and then they leave, they've actually taken away some of the economic benefit from, uh, from the work that they're doing. Yes, but something that's not studied, so please throw one of your graduate students on it quickly, is the desire of many Indigenous people to return, or even not just Indigenous people, but people who grew up in small northern communities, to return to the north when the opportunities are there. And I do get phone calls from Indigenous uh, and done citizens saying, you know, I'm living in Calgary, I'm living in Abbotsford, my, my family's doing the following business. You know, we're in business, we're entrepreneurs. We want an opportunity to move home and work at the mine sites or set up a business up north. And that's certainly the case with uh, Don and Victor, who are Haldane Services. I've, you know, they've, they've moved back to Mayo and they're help, I, we're trying to help them uh, set up a new business with one of our partners, Smalls Expediting, John Small of Smalls Expediting is working with them. So in a sense, it's a wonderful opportunity for people to re-engage with their community and, and to bring back skills and, skills and expertise and education and training that they got elsewhere. And I'll give you one other example. There's a, was a, a red seal uh, mechanic, heavy duty red seal mechanic who graduated, I believe from SAIT in Southern Alberta. Uh, and he's moved back and is working for highways and public works now. And, and I think living in Stewart crossing. That's really a exciting sort of turn of events, isn't it? When the employment opportunities are created and the community starts to build as a, as a consequences of this. Um, Greg, what would you describe as sort of the, Pick the two or three major challenges uh, an Indigenous development corporation faces in the 21st century. All right. The number, the number one challenge I've had to face was getting the company back into a very secure business footing from the perspective of banking and capital and credit. And that's been a two and a half going into three years now. We've been working on this. And this includes very interesting but generally seen as boring stuff like auditing. So we've had audits done of the company for three years running now, and that has helped us secure a major line of credit with a financial organization here called Denine Ventures, which is funded by the federal government. 
uh, and provides support to Indigenous and small business in the north. That's That's been the major hurdle for us is to get credit rating improved. Uh, the Bank of Montreal, actually, uh, one of their vice presidents flew in recently and I had lunch with him and uh, we talked about the vice president for Indigenous banking or Aboriginal banking, I think it is at Bank of Montreal in Toronto. And we discussed the opportunities uh, for, for them to provide us with the credit necessary to invest into heavy equipment, uh, such as what we call heavy iron here, but the big bulldozers and earth moving trucks, uh, and then also uh, more airplanes, uh, get into more uh, aviation and thusly diversify our holdings out of mining to some extent. And so we're in the process now of, of trying to get that credit relationship set up, which would be a major breakthrough for us because we don't have what I call home capital. Our business trusts or our First Nation don't have the monies to invest into the DevCorp. And that brings me to my second major challenge. You asked me for three. The second major challenge we have is indeed our relationship with the First Nation. And that's because there have been so many challenges and problems and failures with past iterations of the development corp. It's it's had a lot of challenges and it's failed quite often. And so in a sense, there's a, a long lingering history of mistrust. And so that takes time to overcome. And so in a sense, some First Nation development corps have a a pot of money that they, they're working from, a trust investment of millions of dollars, and others don't. And those others who don't, well, you have to have a really tight business plan and you have to really follow it up. The third problem I have is also one of our assets. And that's because we are a, a First Nation Development Corp, we're a bit of a hybrid corporation. We're, we're, we're neither a pure capitalist company nor a not-for-profit, you know, social welfare agency, uh, yet we, we have mixtures of the two. But one of the benefits of being a First Nation Dev Corp is access to grant money. And there's a lot of Northern grant money available for innovative technologies, uh, for Aboriginal or Indigenous business development. And by being really ardent about applying for these and really searching for them, and fortunately, Andriana, myself, are really good grant writers coming from academia. We've lived off grants, as as Ken knows. And so in a sense, we were able to take one of those challenges, which is where does the money come from, and turn it into a benefit, which is we're going after grant money. And so in some cases, we're able to get upwards of 75, 80% of new innovative technologies, such as solar panels for our businesses in mail, produced and developed using grant money. So very, very small investment from our own organization allows us to make major benefits for the community. And the most recent one we're working on is something called Cropbox, which is basically a hydroponic factory in a uh, sea can, about a 40 foot long sea can, uh, using hydroponics and LED lighting, which uh, will allow us to sell fresh leafy greens and herbs right into our grocery store and right into the mining camps where we're feeding, you know, we could be feeding upwards of 600 people next summer. So I, I love that story, Greg, because it, it sort of reinforces the the fact that uh, a development corporation is not a tied to a single industry, not tied to a old technologies, that essentially what you see your role being is as responding to opportunities and needs and capitalizing on local economic uh, potential. 
And that seems to be your, your, your business plan and your approach all the way along. It is. And, and I also know, and, and because we have a very well-educated group of people working here, either directly for the firm or related to the firm through our board or my group of advisors um, who mainly have PhDs or in the sciences, we're able to start looking at innovative technology companies and say, you know, if we do a partnership with you, we could help you develop new sources of revenue and we can help invest with you. Uh, we can help you get grants. And the issue becomes one of trying to make sure that uh, we have, um, trying to make sure that we have a First Nation innovation taking place for job creation and opportunities. That's really exciting. So let me let me sort of end our conversation with a, sort of a forward-looking question. So assuming that things work out well, and by that I really mean that the mining sector had better keep growing or else, you know, a lot of the plans have to slow down. But assuming that the mining economy continues at its current pace and development occurs, tell us what uh, the development corporation looks like, say, five in, between five and ten years from now. Wow, Ken, I've, I've been struggling to get a three-year plan in place. <laughs> and I, I've never been a good futurist, I have to confess. Um, five years from now, I'd like to have mining as maybe... Uh, let's honestly say 60% of our portfolio of income and, and start to diversify the other part out. And unfortunately, in the Yukon, so much is tied to mining. Uh, and one of my core principles is to work with as much as possible with local firms and local people and to invest locally as well. So if we could get to a 60-40 split on our income, that would be fabulous. Uh, what I'd like to see personally here at the office, I'd like to see us have two or three more people who are doing nothing but project management and innovative idea development. If we could finance and fund that, we could really be into a sustainable growth opportunity. And this, I have to confess, is, speaks to one of the other problems I didn't mention earlier, is that a lot of First Nation Dev Corps burn through people pretty quickly for one reason or another. One of the things I would have to say, one of the problems that a lot of First Nations and their dev corps have is an instability in their management groups. Uh, they don't have people in there long enough to make a difference and to get a plan in place. And they don't have, as, a, as in the case of my situation when I came in, there's uh, no um, inheritance, shall we say. There's another term. It's lost my slipped my mind right now. But there's no futuristic planning on how we move from one management group to the next. Well, listen, Greg, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, we wanted to give uh, our listeners an introduction to the very unique world of uh, Indigenous development corporations. Um, I think what you've done is do an excellent job of describing sort of in a, in a community that very few people have heard of. It's a wonderful community in, in central, central Yukon that I know well, um, but very few people have heard about it. And you've given us a portrait of a, a creative, community-based, uh, entrepreneurial organization that probably stands in stark contrast to what most people think development corporations are all about and Indigenous business can all be about. So I want to thank you very, very much. Um, this is uh, Pod Bless Canada from McDonald Laurie Institute. My name is uh, Ken Coates, a senior fellow with the Institute. We've been speaking with uh, Greg Finnegan, who's the chief executive officer of the Nacho Nyakdan First Nation a Development Corporation, operates out of um, a Mayo in Yukon. Greg, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you very much, Ken, and thank you, uh, McDonald Laurie Institute, for this wonderful opportunity. Thank you. Bye.